We'll start when the, uh, the pictures come up. So this is, uh, you, you just get your mind focused. There's Paul in jail, and he's writing from being in jail for those whom he's, he's very close to. Philippians is a lovely letter because in it, Paul, every now and again, opens his heart. Normally, you see him as a missionary with lots of tasks and things to sort out, a bit like a church warden, really. And you see Paul at the back and you think, is there a heart to Paul? I'm sure there is. I sure there is, actually. But it's very easy to be caught up what you do. In Philippians, Paul wants to share out of what's really important for him. Now, for a while, I worked in the next door diocese, the Diocese of Birmingham. And there we have a link with the church in Africa, in Malawi. And every now and again, we would go, and they still do today, go out on trips to Malawi to just to see how the church is there and to see if we can build this sense of partnership. Um, we, had, we welcomed visitors from Malawi. They come here. And uh, we had a, a lovely sort of farewell service in the cathedral where some of them came and shared their impressions of the Church of England. And it was, it was lovely, really. They said how much their, how the buildings impressed them. They talked about how everything was ordered. Um, and then they hesitated. And I said during the interview, well, what else struck you? Now, remember, these are Christian, African Christians who are also Anglicans, with Anglicans in this country. So we're all part of the big family. What else struck you, they said? Well, they said, cough, cough, hesitant, hesitant. I said, go on. What were two things struck us, they said. said right? He said, the first is, why are you all so miserable? And I looked at them. And actually, do you know, sometimes you see those photographs, those African Christians with lovely beaming faces, white teeth, and, and full of life and... and and I, then I looked out and I congregate. Oh, yes. I should just have the camera pan round. And I wondered, because when they worship in Malawi, they do use a liturgy much more formal than we do. But within the liturgy, they dance and sing and drum and they worship. And you see them worshiping the whole bodies, not just standing still and saying the words or singing very just quietly and raising half a hand every now and again if somebody's not looking. So and then the second thing they said was, and why don't you talk more about Jesus? And I thought, yes. Some of us, we're just used to being polite. The third, sorry, the 11th commandment for, 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 uh, Anglican, uh, for English people is, thou shalt not embarrass thy conversation partner, isn't it? So you don't bring up anything that's a bit complicated, just in case you get embarrassed, tongue-tied, tongue or, or they do. And so one, one woman said to me once, David, I've spent 20 years building a friendship with my neighbor so I can talk to her about Jesus. I said, great, how's it going? Well, I haven't dared mention it in case I put her off. And I thought, hang on a minute. <laughs> well, we went out to, to Malawi, and just to sort of set the scene, that's where Malawi is. It's that tiny little country there uh, in Central Africa. And uh, if, you have a, if we go a bit closer, you can see, see in the... Um, well, you probably will soon. There we are. Uh, it's actually a country which is on the west side of a long lake, Lake Malawi. And if you look there, 
in the middle, can you just see the, the place in Kota Kota? Just there on the side of the lake, there. Well, that's where the first Anglican cathedral was built by the missionaries and the new Christians there. Now, it may not be quite what you imagine, but for, for an African cathedral, it's something special. There's the lake. Gorgeous. I mean, tourism could flourish um, and does in, to a limited extent. And just by the lake, there's the cathedral. Now, you might notice it's built out of uh, corrugated iron. Now, when you have houses out there that are built of mud and mottled and straw, and there's heavy rain and they get washed down, this is a great step forward. But you can see how uh, Christians from Malawi thought, looking at that, um, and then they looked at the buildings here. They thought how lucky we are to have buildings that have been here for 100 years are still standing, don't get washed away. And then just occasionally, round the corner, you'll find one of these, a sign. This one, the graves of the missionaries associated with the establishment of the, in that case, the Bandawe Church. Can you imagine? That's part now of the tourism trail. And when I went to that cathedral in Kotoko, and so did Mary, I think at some point, where's Mary? You, you got inside in Kotokota? Yes. You go inside, and it is quite cathedralish. You know, it's dark and long and high, and there's, you can see the kind of windows. But when you go outside, round the back, you see a sign like that which leads you to this. Now, you may not be able to see it, so we'll do a close-up in a second. That's the grave of a missionary. And this is what's written on the foot. Can you just read that? In loving memory of James Edward Fraser of Glasgow, Scotland, born the 19th of January, 1874, died the 28th of March, 1899. So therefore, he was how old? Sorry, I thought a bit of participation would keep you awake. <laughs> but I didn't realize that was a hard question. <laughs> 25. Yes, 25. And when you walk along, you see these headstones. 25, 22, 27, 20. Sometimes they got to 30. These young people went out to tell the story of Jesus, to proclaim Christ. And when they went out, they knew that most of them would die there because we, hadn't any, we didn't understand the kind of diseases of Central Africa. This was just beginning. There was a great uh, missionary doctor called Dr. David Livingston who actually went and just at Nkota, in Kotakota, he saw the need and he came back here to tell the church in this country, will you please come out and preach the gospel? And he went to uh, the University of Cambridge. He didn't just start anywhere. And here's a copy of his addresses to the, the Cambridge lectures, as they called, to the young men in particular. You can see it there. This book is dedicated in prayerful hope that attention will be turned to the perusal of the pressing need of missionaries in the heathen mission field, so much enlarged by the, the labors of Dr. David Livingston. Somebody said to him once, do you know, you, you must find it very difficult because it is hard and people have died and you get disease. And he said, for the sake of knowing Christ. Well, let me quote his exact words. People talk of sacrifice I've made in spending so much time in Africa. Can that be called sacrifice? 
which is simply paying back as a small part of the great debt we owe to God, which we can never repay. Is that really a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity? I think that was a euphemism. Healthful sometimes. The consciousness of doing good, the peace of mind, and the bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter. Away with the, with the view, away with such a thought. It is emphatically not a sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with the foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause. They may even make our spirits waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I, says David Livingstone, never made a sacrifice. What an amazing person. And you know, he did. He, he went back to and from Africa, to Central Africa, and eventually died there um, of one of those diseases, which also led to the death of some of those mission partners. But do you capture something of the vision of the, and the energy of the man in that? Well, that is very, very close to Paul. And what we've got in Paul's letter here is almost the same, but 2,000 years earlier. Paul gives us a glimpse of his spiritual life. And there are three points I'd just like to offer you that come from this sermon. And if you take your uh, Bible now and look to one, chapter 1, verse 19, let's look at that first quote. It's up on the screen if you haven't got a Bible there, but it is slightly small. I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. That's Paul writing to the people who are praying for him. Now, he's in jail. His future, he's going to court in Rome. And the judgment could be anything. It could be execution. He doesn't, does not know. He's there. And he prays and thanks God and rejoices and says, your prayers will lead to my deliverance. But now, this is, this is the extra bit. When you go home today, you can tell somebody at home you did a bit of Greek and, you'll, and they'll all think, wow, they're really serious at that place. There are two words in Greek which Paul could have used for deliverance. The first word is the word soter, which means salvation. And the second word is the word exodus, which means getting out, setting free, getting out of jail. And the exodus is the name given to the book where the children of Israel were set free in the exodus. Now, what is interesting here is that Paul chooses, well, which word do you think? It's this word. Paul is not saying, your prayers will get me out of prison. And I'm not even praying that I will get out of prison. What I'm praying is the salvation that Jesus brought will be made plain. And he goes on, and you know, this is exactly what you see. I'm in prison, and good things have flowed from it. For Paul, he was more interested in sharing the gospel of Jesus than of being free from all the risks and perils of being in jail. In Paul's heart, he wanted people to know about Jesus, and he was prepared to put up with anything for it. That's the first thing about it. Paul wanted salvation to flourish. Well, the second thing 
he actually says here, verse 12, if you've got it there in front of you, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, how what has happened to me, being uh, chained up in prison, has actually served to advance the gospel. If you see it. Now, I want you to know, as a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard, every, I'm in chains for Christ. That's, they know why I'm here. And look, verse 14, this is the interesting thing. Because of my chains, most of the other brothers and sisters have what? Have they become more timid? Because now they see if you speak of Christ and get locked up, quite the reverse. Now that's given other people confidence to share this wonderful gospel and to dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Do you see it could go two ways? Paul gets locked up and you think, I'm not going to speak out. I might follow him. Or Paul gets locked up and you think, well, if he can do it, so can I. Paul, there. So he sees he'd rather have Jesus and be with him, with Jesus, than, as it were, find some way out to avoid difficulty and suffering. Difficulty and suffering here are the way the gospel is proclaimed. And I think what Paul is really saying is something, it's quite profound and serious, really. That it is very easy as a Christian, to, when difficulties and sufferings come, to pray, Lord Jesus, please remove these. Please get me a way out. Please heal a person who's unwell. Please help me find a way forward because I'm confused. Whereas really Paul's prayer says, we ought to be praying, Lord, may I find you in where I am and find that that sets me free to see what you want me to do and say. To be a Christian is not to sign up to a life of ever-increasing happiness and joy. To be a Christian is to sign up as a friend of Jesus. And Jesus goes wherever is needed, through whatever is needed, in order to proclaim the gospel. And that's Paul's heart, really. He wants people to know about Jesus and so when he's there in a, in a strange place, he prays that that will become his occasion for the freedom to speak of Jesus. And then third, the, the uh, verse with which we began, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's one uh, verse uh, nine, uh, 21. Paul writes, if I'm to go on living in this body, uh, sorry, just before that, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As a vicar, I used to sometimes go around um, residential homes for the elderly. And it's very interesting, as you, as you, I'm sure, are aware, as people get older, they seem to care less about what others think of them. Have you noticed that? Well, I've noticed that in you. I mean, no. And I'm sure you've seen it in me too. So, and when I used to go around, I used to look into people's eyes as I'm speaking to them, and you could see the difference Christian faith makes. Do you know, you can be busy and you can give the impression of being on top of things, a success in life, having got life sorted, everything's you know, going swimmingly. But actually, inwardly, you're, you could be lost. You give the impression, you could even convince yourself. And when you get older, you realize your body does begin to slow up. You can't do that sort of eight-minute mile they used to. Now it's about sort of half an hour, 100 yards, meters. Um, probably with a little piece of assistance. So as you get older, you realize that actually this life is but for a while. And 
we are not in charge of our destiny. We are just human beings who are going through the cycle of life. And people get just more scratchy, I think, when they get older, because they get irritated by the way their body, their frame lets them down. So when, you, when I used to visit these homes, you could see the difference that having faith in Jesus made. It was much more clear than I've seen at any other stage in, in life. I mean, I visited uh, young people who just had a baby, and often having a baby is an amazing gift from God, and people think about how, what a lovely thing a new life is. And sometimes they, they hold this little baby there, and you can see, especially the mother going, help, what have I got to do next? Uh, because especially if it's their first. There are other periods when, as a minister, you help at weddings when there's all, you know, full of joy and lots of stories of Jesus helping us with quality wine and all that stuff. But actually, we see ourselves most truthfully when we're older. And there you see, in the eyes of those who have faith, a hope that actually transcends the fact that their body is falling to bits. It is just lovely. And that is what Paul is saying. For me to live, but shall I tell you something? There's something so much better. is to know Christ and to be with him. Do you know, read this. Could, could you say, honestly, could you say this? Verse, carrying on, verse 22. If I'm going to go on living in the body, well, that's fruitful labor for me. I, and yet, what shall I choose? Do you know, I don't know. Verse 23. I'm torn. Why? Because I desire to depart and to be with Christ. It's better by far. But as it's more necessary for you that I remain, so I will. Paul is looking forward to heaven in a huge way. And he's just, as it were, going through this life on his way to heaven. He's here temporarily and he wants to do what Jesus wants here. But actually, his heart's in heaven. He's a citizen of heaven. And heaven is the place where he will know Jesus face to face. Do you know, we know him in bits and pieces. Sometimes you have a lovely close time, walk with him, and then other times it's hard and difficult. But there you'll see him face to face. For Paul... That was his perspective on life, heaven, Jesus. And out of that flowed his life. Sometimes I think we get the other way around. We get so busy with this life and then we think about heaven. How many Christians do you know who go around saying, do you know, I'm really looking forward to being in heaven. Now, I know people believe it, but how many say it? You see, we are caught up with the spirit of our age, the culture of our day. The culture of our day actually says that we, this life is important. Immortality doesn't exist. We must invest in this life. We need everything. And we must have it. And, and, and presumably, if you live in the West, we must have it instantly. We need to capture something of Paul's perspective on life. That all of this is transitory. Do you know, I, I don't know if I can blame my mother for it, but I was born with legs which are slightly too short for what I want to do, and a voice which is slightly... <laughs> run faster, if you want to know. Um, and, and a voice which isn't quite... I used to sing tenor in a choir, but the high C was a very thin little sound. It wasn't where you, you know. And I think to my mother, why did you... I can't say that, really. We're just here for a while, imperfectly, to do what the Lord wants. We're not here to escape the complications of life, but to find Jesus in them. And Jesus is in them. And all we need to do is allow him to open our awareness to him. That's what Paul say on his heart. If you were to, do, to sit down with Paul, he'd say, in my heart, I just love being with Christ. 
It's the best thing I know. And everything else I'm willing to count as dross, as he said. It doesn't matter. If you get Jesus at the center of your life and you put him there as your Lord, not just as a person, but as the one around whom your life orientates, you'll discover this. You'll discover that actually when hard things come, God uses them. You don't avoid them. You go through them to bring blessing to others. You'll discover the perspectives, which mean you can see the long as well as the short. You can see the wood as well as the trees. And you can see the hope in heaven before us. And you will have that, that bounce, that spring, that life that you'll see in those old people's homes, which I spoke of. And so Paul, at several points in Philippians, shares his heart. This is just one place. He didn't want to get out of jail. He wanted to honor Jesus. He wanted, wherever he was, for Jesus to be at the center. And it turned him around. I think those Malawian Christians helped us see that in the cathedral in Birmingham on that day. Because I think one of the reasons why we're not so cheerful is not just because it's the weather, or we're British, or even Yorkshire. It's actually because our minds are not full of Jesus. They're full of other stuff. So we pray in the morning, and we set out, hoping the Lord's with us. We plough through the day, and at the end of the day, we come and say, well, Lord, that was all right on, in the main, but, and so on. We have a reflection, an examine, as some people call it. But actually, says Paul, it's Christ with me right now. It's the best thing I've ever known. And it's the thing I want to commend to anybody who will have time to listen to me. And I don't mind if they think I'm a bit of a religious nutter. I couldn't care less. If somebody enters into the experience of knowing Christ, it's worthwhile. It's eternity at stake. Who cares about a little bit of embarrassment? So if you're the lady who's built your relationship with that neighbor for 25 years now, I would say it's probably about time to call it in and say, do you know the most important thing for me? And you say, well, I did think it was, it was your lawn because it was beautifully manicured. No, I am a gardener, but I don't. It's Jesus. We, if we enter into the truth we know in our heads, if that drink gets to our hearts, we'll be following in Paul's footsteps and the footsteps of David Livingstone. We have got the most important thing ever, a wonderful privilege. We just need to enter into it. And in the light of that, then we need to, as it were, put aside the things that clutter us up and distract us. Um, Janet is very good at um, saying to us at home that we must declutter. Do you know that? Yeah. And well, we're still, we're having a debate about the meaning of the word at the moment. <laughs> that which qualifies to be considered as uh, declutterable. <laughs> but actually, that's a very good picture for our spiritual lives. People who, as it were, put Christ at the center, they flourish. People who put Christ at the center, their faith becomes real. People who put Christ at the center discover that when things are hard, Jesus is there. When I was uh, in, in East Africa, they had this lovely picture of the heart. I've used it before, the heart with a chair on it. And, these, and they would say to these, the revival Christians in East Africa, they would say to each other as they passed in the street or met in the shops or down in the town, They'd say, who's on the throne today? And it was either you or Jesus. 
And it was a way of reminding each other, because it's so easy to get caught up with stuff, that put Jesus on the throne and other things drop into place. That I was going to, I won't sing it, you'll be glad to know, but uh, when I started out as a Christian um, about a million years ago, there was a chorus called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Do some of you know it? And, uh, oh, lots of you know it. <laughs> and, and you know the words, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, then the things of earth will, what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his wonder and grace. That's what Paul's saying. So let's do that. Let's pause and say, Lord, I'm sorry I've got tangled up in this. I've got over and committed in that. Jesus, come now back to your rightful place as my Lord at the center. Just a pause.